0: Playing in Gadigal land, we have uh, Giuseppe inviting you to another LNL, and uh, tonight the three stories are sort of linked by the fact that each of them are surreal. Shortly, of course, Bruce Shapiro on his endlessly bizarre American politics. Katrina Wallace then joins us to talk about the, uh, well, the the menace of the metaverse, for which you are required to wear your virtual reality uh, helmet, which we've made available to you, of course. And then Eleanor Alan Limprecht is going to tell us about Sydney's leper colony, the very strange stories that went on within it, up to and including love stories. But first to, uh, to Bruce. And his bizarre country, and we have to begin, of course, Bruce, with the attack on uh, on the Pelosi home.
1: Yes, well, you know, bizarre, strange, um, berserk doesn't even begin to describe the ca- the, the cascading, um, just the cascading violence of American politics going into these midterms. Um, Paul Pelosi, the wife of Nancy, the husband of Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, attacked in his home by a man, police now say, intending to kidnap kidnap and kneecap the Speaker of the House. Uh, came in shouting the slogan almost two years ago that echoed through the Congress, the halls of Congress, Where's Nancy? Clearly propelled forward by the conspiracy theories, by the calls to insurrection and violence over the Internet in the last two years. Um, And, you know, this would be horrific enough if it were an isolated event, but it is coming uh, amid a campaign in which we are seeing um, armed and threatening militias uh, in several states, Arizona and elsewhere, Um, surrounding ballot boxes for early voting and otherwise threatening to intimidate voters going to the polls, threatening violence going in. We've been seeing, as you and I have discussed, the rise in anti-Semitism among mainstream candidates for office, including governor of Pennsylvania. Um, There has never been an election, not even the 2020 election, in which the the Both reality and pervasive threat of violence, not since the end of, of segregation anyway, um, when of course, the threat of violence was used to enforce in, in, enforce um, racial codes and intimidation of black voters, but in contemporary America, we've never seen an election like this. And the the attack on Paul Pelosi um, only exemplifies that. Indeed, Nancy Pelosi, we now know, is the um, top receiver of threats in Congress. But there are dozens of others members of members of Congress who routinely now deal with threats, of violence. Uh, And it's it's bipartisan. We've had a man arrested outside Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh's
0: house. Sorry, I have to mention that the chief twit the equally surreal Egon Musk also perpetrated a conspiracy theory in regard to this attack.
1: Well, indeed. And, you know, I, I had been planning, of course, on talking about the Quite significant takeover of Twitter by by Elon Musk, as a separate matter. But Musk threw himself right into the middle of the Pelosi matter by um, retweeting a completely groundless claim from a Bay Area publication notorious for promoting uh, conspiracy theories and and far right agendas. Um, it's not even worth repeating. In fact, it would be malpractice to repeat what the conspiracy theory was. But, you know, in the very week that Musk has taken over Twitter, said the bird is free, and then on the other hand said, well, oops, we're, we're not going to get rid of our content moderation right away and we're going to have a commission and I'm not going to reinstate Donald Trump um, – Musk put himself in the position, essentially, of showing that he's he's sooner or later going to need to ban himself from Twitter if Twitter is going to have any standards at all. Um, it you know it one of it just shows how one of the driving forces of this polarized and violent climate has been the kind of. The adolescent libertarianism of Silicon Valley.
0: Now, um, uh, although he's still banned from Twitter, the Donald has uh, has expressed great regret and sadness about the Pelosi attack.
1: Uh, well, <laughs> you know, the Donald, and even worse, Donald Jr. I uh, mean, Don, Don Jr. has um, not even, as his father has made a kind of insincere faint in the in in the direction of regret don jr has been joking about the attack on nancy pelosi on twitter and one, one of the kind of markers of of the shift in american politics has been the the fact that there are big big corners of the mainstream of the republican party powerful national figures who have not seen it necessary to deplore this act of violence, um, and that is as alarming. The failure to speak up is as alarming as as the wackadoodles who are actively promoting conspiracy theories on on the darker corners of Fox and on the darker corners of Twitter and the darker corners of Truth Social, which is nothing but dark corners, huh. and, and, and. Um, and, you know, this is... Musk's takeover of Twitter two weeks before this enormously consequential election um, really is significant because of of Musk's... Um, articulated commitment to, you know, wrestling match, uh, pro-wrestling standards of civic
0: discourse. That's the problem. There was a a ghastly uh, attack, a virtual attack on Ocasio-Cortez, wasn't there, via a video created by a fellow member of Congress, a Republican from Arizona. Well,
1: yes, and, you know, Ocasio-Cortez, after Nancy Pelosi, uh, is, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman from New York, is the favorite favorite target of of gender-bigoted right-wingers. But again, the fact that it's coming from a member of Congress, in a state where the terms of the gubernatorial election, in a neck-and-neck governor's race, are between um, and a, an election denier. Carrie Lake, not only a Trump ally, but a 2020 election denier, um, and a centrist Democrat. Um, this, again, speaks to what members of Congress see as the way to get forward. Republican members of Congress see the way to get donations, the way to get props, is to... Um, Issue defamatory deep fakes to issue conspiracy theories or to dance at the edge of conspiracy theories. Um, it's not just old-fashioned mudslinging, which has been a feature of American politics forever and is one of the things that makes this country entertaining. It is setting up politicians for um, for assassination. I mean, let's be blunt. That's what was directed at Pelosi, and that is what is going to happen. As a result of all of this rhetoric, whether or not there are there are planned conspiracies doesn't matter because the whole purpose of these kinds of deep fakes and 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 conspiracy tweets is to appeal to the most overheated minds and motivate
0: them to take extreme action. Talking to Bruce Shapiro, uh, let's talk now about the midterms, just hours away, and uh, about to wreak havoc. Uh, Last time we talked about Georgia and Alaska. What about uh, looking at, well, Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania?
1: Well, we've talked about Pennsylvania before, but it's it's getting even more intense. First of all, we do have the governor's race there that's pitting Joshua Shapiro, Josh Shapiro, no relation to me except in some kind of deep historical sense, um against uh, Mastriano, a uh a, a Trump-allied Republican who has been raising alarm among Jewish leaders, not only in Pennsylvania, but all over the country with his uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric about cosmopolitan elites repeating of classic uh, anti-Semitic tropes. Um, Then in that one, it's likely that Joshua Shapiro is going to prevail. But then we have the neck-and-neck Senate race between Democrat John Fetterman, Fetterman the Lieutenant Governor, and Mehmet Oz, uh, formerly and probably still of New Jersey, but who dragged his carpets uh, into Pennsylvania to run for Senate. Um,
0: it got well, Fetterman is such an extraordinary figure, literally. I mean, he's six foot eight. He, uh, he usually dresses in shorts and a hoodie.
1: He does, but, you know, he also had a stroke right after getting the nomination way back in June, Um, and while he was qualified by his doctor to work and said that he's fine, um, he does suffer from auditory processing issues um, that are still um, affecting his work, and while it seemed okay, um, I think the public at large didn't get a sense of the depth of these issues until a the one and only debate that Fetterman and Oz had last week, in which he needed a, a teleprompter to uh, interpret some stuff, and where some of his processing issues led to some idiosyncratic expressions, like um, beginning the evening by saying, good night, everyone. Um, clearly, this is someone dealing with disability, but dealing with it in a, in a quite courageous and focused way. And in the meantime... Dr. Oz didn't do himself any favors. He can't claim uh, cognitive processing disorder for saying, as he did, that abortion should be between a woman, her doctor, and local political leaders. Um, this is, you know, this is being watched so closely because it is one of the handful of knife-edge races, along with Arizona. Uh, Uh, several other states, Georgia and others, that will determine the balance of power in the Senate, which, of course, is 50-50, now favoring the Democrats. All it takes is Republicans to swing one seat. So what happens in Pennsylvania now matters tremendously to the rest of the country. Um, You know, if you're betting, there's some... There seems to be some momentum for a Democratic Senate at the moment. If you're betting on the House, the momentum is for a Republican House, for Pelosi to lose the leadership to Kevin McCarthy. But this is a year in which there are so many unpredictable factors. We do not know how young people are going to vote. We do not know really who's going to turn out versus who's disgusted. We don't know what role the loss of Roe versus Wade is going to play compared to the economy. And in particular, we don't know uh, the role that governor's races are going to play. And that's an interesting one. In governor's races, you've got Democrats favored to swing a number of Republican states, including even possibly Oklahoma, one of the deepest red states in the country, may favor a Democratic governor. So we just, and you don't know how that's going to play out down ballot. Are people going to vote straight Democratic or are they going to break up their ballot? There's there's a lot of polling going on. A lot of it is suggestive of Democratic loss of the House and Democratic control of the Senate. But no one really knows how this is going to turn out. And when you and I talk next
0: week, it will, we'll be waking up to a different country. I'm dreading yeah. that conversation, I must say, Bruce. Good on you, Bruce. Bruce Shapiro, of course, exec director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. LNL on RN. Please adjust your VR goggles. loved listeners is the metaverse i hear you ask and you hear me ask as well because i don't have the foggiest idea but it's apparently worth 100 billion dollars this very year and my next best and my next best Katrina Wallace says it's in dire need of regulation Katrina Wallace is the founder of a wonderful organisation, the Responsible Metaverse Alliance, and she joins us from from Ballina. The first question I have to ask you is, do I need to buy one of those silly-looking goggles to access this thing?
2: (laughs) Yes, Philip, you do. So the metaverse is accessed predominantly through augmented reality glasses and virtual reality glasses, but there are some metaverses such as Decentraland, Sandbox, Roblox that you can do on your desktop. But really when we're talking about metaverse, we're talking about using these goggles to access a virtual world.
0: So it relies on a on a network of 3D virtual worlds?
2: Yes. So if we think about what the metaverse is... It is a construct or concept originally coined around 1999 by an author called Neil Stevenson in a book called Snow Crash, and he talked about this concept of a metaverse that was made up of virtual worlds. So when we talk about the metaverse today in in business, we talk about an immersive, simulated or virtual world, so there's, there's not There's one metaverse but multiple virtual worlds where people come to make social connections and they're normally doing that using virtual reality goggles.
0: So there's VR, there's AR, there's MR and I understand there's also haptics as well so you can feel.
2: Yes, so a haptic suit is a suit that you would wear along with your virtual reality goggles and the haptic suit would allow you to feel whatever experience you were having in the metaverse. So, example. So, I put my goggles on a week ago. I went into virtual reality. I was in Canada walking around with the polar bears. So, I just had the visuals of being in a 3D world with the polar bears. But if I had a haptic suit on, I'd be able to feel the cold, maybe feel the Breath of a polar bear as it was coming near me, which might not be such a good thing to feel, but those sorts of um, sensations.
0: So a useful way to think about the about the metaverse is that we as humans now have at least three worlds we can interact in.
2: Yes, that's absolutely the message. So we have the physical world, which is just human to human, our normal um, world that we, we live in. The digital world, which is through um, social media and desktop um, smartphones and now we have a virtual world and the virtual world is accessed through these goggles and the really important thing uh, Philip is that a lot of people don't realize this virtual world exists and is very real in my opinion and they don't realize it because they have not in the goggles accessing that world.
0: Well, take me back to your wandering around Canada having, you know, I hope maintaining a safe distance from polar (laughs) bears. How plausible is it? How convincing?
2: Extremely convincing. So, I mean, you obviously know that you're not there walking on the snow, but it is, um, we have a concept of in the metaverse that we call immersion... And presence and immersion is—it's so immersive. It feels like you are almost there. And the presence is—you have a sense of presence that I am here, and the polar bear is not too far away from me. Or if I'm interacting with people, I am here, and that that avatar is very close to me.
0: It's, it's very strange to a technophobe like myself because it seems to me that people are running away from the real, real world and embracing of, well, parallel universes.
2: Well, I think there is some truth in that, but I don't necessarily think that everyone who's going... So, at the moment, there's around just under half a billion monthly users or, or participants in the metaverse. I don't think they're all trying to escape the physical world, or the, although I think there probably are some... Think of it as an extension of reality that's actually an incredibly fabulous experience where you can do so much more than you could do just in this physical world.
0: Katrina, how does, well, you've pointed out it already exists, it's already big, and there are online worlds where people play games and muck around with the uh, cryptocurrencies, but it's unregulated,
2: Yes, so this is my gravest fear and probably the fear of most of the big metaverse thinkers and philosophers who are um, commenting on this globally. So let's think about this. These are new virtual worlds owned by the tech giant, so Meta, who used to be Facebook, Microsoft. Uh, we expect Apple to come out with their augmented and virtual reality offering in the next 12 months, Fortnite games, uh, Sandbox, Decentraland. So these organizations creating these virtual worlds with no government, no rules, no laws, and their models will be based on engaging humans or participants in order to probably sell them something very very similar to the models of social media and web 2.0 but this time it's completely unregulated
0: what prompted uh, zuckerberg to rename facebook meta
2: yes so he understands that the metaverse is probably going to be bigger than even when the internet came and he's seen it ahead of time because he owns Oculus. So Oculus is the headset manufacturer for virtual reality goggles and and they provide 80% of most of the headsets now that are used in the metaverse. And so he has seen that this is coming, it's coming quickly and so he's putting on $10 billion dollars is what he announced he would invest in putting on 10,000 workers in Europe to build his company, Meta, their virtual world, which is called Horizon World.
0: Is there a risk of the uh, metaverse being dominated by an oligopoly?
2: So there is definitely, there will be a race to who has the dominant virtual world in the metaverse. and companies that are in that race at the moment would include Meta, obviously, Microsoft, but Microsoft are coming at it more from a business lens. Uh, Samsung, Apple will be in there eventually, Epic Games, and there's probably 160 virtual worlds that I'm aware of at the moment. So some small, some will be larger. But if we follow Meta's, so Zuckerberg's Meta, I think this is going to be their main play for the next 10 years. And that, to me, Philip, is extremely disturbing, given the history of a company like Meta.
0: Katrina, online privacy has been in the news a lot lately with the massive hacks of, well, of Optus and Medibank and lots of concerns about data harvesting from social media companies. Are there greater privacy risks in the metaverse than there are with our digital lives already?
2: Yes, and I'm working very closely with Julie Inman-Grant, the eSafety Commissioner, and also Lorraine Finlay, the Human Rights Commissioner, Minister Victor Dominello, who is Minister for Digital and Customer Service for New South Wales, as part of the Responsible Metaverse Alliance in looking at what are these privacy risks and And why are they going to be so much worse than we're seeing in in social media and web 2.0? And the reason for that is the goggles and equipment that you use in the metaverse have a lot more ability to be measuring signals and signs about you as an individual. So, the new goggles that were just released last week by Meta now can track your eye movements, can track, I think it's your temperature and they can track your emotions, whether you you are gazing at something for a bit longer, whether your eye moves on something. And so they will get to know not only our behaviors as in what we choose or like or recommend, but our emotional responses to certain stimuli. So that gives them enormous power of coercion, manipulation.
0: Now, on one level, I find this all a bit exhilarating. I'd rather love at my advanced age to be able to travel the world and uh, mm-hmm. revisit places I loved and go to places I've never been. I'd like to wander through art galleries. And, you know, there's a whole lot of them, applications, which would even, I think, be good in, um, in tackling climate change. You know, virtual reality is obviously less polluting than, the, than reality, reality, but I'm terrified by the implications of what you're describing. And what about the financial concerns, money laundering, cryptocurrency scams?
2: Yes. So the very interesting part of the metaverse is that it doesn't always operate on our usual financial model, which is cash or, or credit card or debit card. So, Most of the metaverse virtual worlds are based on a financial model that includes cryptocurrencies, NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens, which are the digital assets and all sitting on the blockchain. And and there's hundreds of millions of billions of dollars now going through uh, crypto exchanges that are, may or may not be related to the metaverse, but there are significant financial risks, financial scams that go on in the metaverse. Because of course, Philip, the concept of identity is very loose in the metaverse. You could present as an avatar and you yourself, Philip, could present as a young woman if you chose to. I could present as an older man or as a, a younger woman. There's nobody saying who your identity needs to be and your identity isn't tagged to anything in the digital or the physical world. And that's a huge concern.
0: I understand that people are buying real estate in the metaverse.
2: Yes. So in 2021, there was in US dollars, half a billion dollars worth of virtual property sold in the metaverse. And by the end of 2022, it's expected to be a billion US dollars worth of virtual real estate sold.
0: But how can you own a virtual space and why would you want to?
2: (laughs) Yes, so you can quite easily own it or even rent it, very similar to the way that you would buy a real estate, a block of land in the physical world. Except the difference in the virtual world is that there's no scarcity. So, uh, two of the main virtual real estate providers are Sandbox and Decentraland. And, and, you, and it looks like a, it, still a bit cartoonish, but it looks like a, just a, a normal uh, land and streetscape. And you can choose a block of land, virtual land and buy it. Now, the great thing for Sandbox and Decentraland is they never run out of land because, of course, it's virtual. So they can keep building and building and building land. So the concept of scarcity is something that the metaverse tries to remove. And so people who perhaps could never own physical land or even have a, a strong digital presence can go and buy reasonably affordably a virtual block of land and then buy a virtual home. Now, my, uh, one of my stepsons, um, Jaden Rubenstein, owns a company called Estates.io, which builds virtual homes to put... On virtual property, and those virtual homes can be somewhere between twenty-five to two hundred and fifty dollars to buy a full virtual home that you can put your goggles on and go and live on on your virtual land.
0: Heavens above! Now, there's also a potential risk, I assume, for uh, for there to be, as there is a dark web a place for right, ultra-right extremist terrorist criminal syndicates to uh, congregate in.
2: Yes, this is a big concern. And I have been working with the uh, a number of the police commission, uh, assistant commissioners in Australia, also New Zealand, been talking to the Department of Home Affairs, Internal Affairs here in Australia and in New Zealand, and particularly uh, Christchurch Call in New Zealand, Which was set up after the Christchurch massacre. The leading executives there are all deeply concerned that the metaverse now provides another place where. Perhaps terrorist groups or extremist groups who have been banned in using social media or banned in doing things physically can now reorganise in the metaverse, and so that's of significant concern. So we've got very good activity in Australia, very good interest from Crime Stoppers, the police, Department of Internal Affairs, um, Human Rights Commissioner, um, in in starting to have Australia lead. Conversations about how do we police and, and minimise the chance of terrorism in the metaverse.
0: We've uh, seen the mighty, the sort of the godlike uh, tycoons, and I'm thinking of uh, the gentleman who's just stuffed up his purchase of uh, of Twitter, making mistakes. And I wonder whether perhaps Zuckerberg has put himself in that category. I learned from you that he's pumped more than thirty six billion into his Metaverse venture since, well, 2019, which has resulted in a $30.7 billion operating loss.
2: Hmm. I still think he's probably on the right... I think it's a well-thought-out bet, and I think he will do everything in his power to win the, you know, the predominant player in the metaverse. So, and and look, I think, Philip, this, we predict within the next three to five years, the way we uh, do, the way we live our lives will have a strong metaverse uh, flavor. So, for example, how you and I are talking now, we would probably do it by speaking in a virtual interview room. So, I do think it's coming. I think it's very real, and I think it's probably a reasonable bet that, zuckerberg has made whether he comes out the dominant one or not is yet to see uh, i'm pretty nervous that it it might be him i would prefer it not but we'll we'll see
0: and are the other players other chinese looking at it
2: Yes. So we've got very strong leadership coming out of South Korea in particular. So the South Korean government has a whole metaverse strategy and they have something called a metaverse alliance where they have 500 organisations, I think sponsored by Samsung, who are all signed up to help build South Korea's metaverse. Dubai has actually uh, formally announced that They're putting $4 billion into building Dubai's metaverse. They want to put on 40,000 jobs in the next few years and they want to become one of the top 10 metaverse economies. So we're seeing really significant leadership out of other parts of the region, yes.
0: I think you're an extraordinary guest and uh, I'm sitting here reeling at the possibilities. Thanks for that, uh, Katrina Wallace. Katrina is founder of the Responsible Metaverse Alliance and you heard her on a little program called Late Night Live. Thanks, Katrina. Thanks, Philip. Coming up, the lives and would you believe loves inside Sydney's leper colony. Thank you. If you reckon COVID isolation was tough, then then picture this. You think you're coming down with something. The doctors examine you, and next thing you know, you're being bundled off by the police and forced to live the rest of your life separated from friends and family. You will never work again. Your house, your possessions are burnt. You are shunned by all who knew you And in many cases, even your name will be erased from memory. Now, this was the life of thousands of Australians diagnosed with leprosy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And my guest has delved into the lives and loves of people who lived in Sydney's leper colony in her book, The Coast. Now this is the fourth novel for author Eleanor who who is also a lecturer in creative writing over the road at the University of Technology in Sydney. Eleanor, welcome to the Little Wireless Program and congratulations on the book.
3: Thank you so much, Philip. It's lovely to be here.
0: What was the coast?
3: The Coast was the first public hospital that opened um, in Sydney and it was the first public post-convict era hospital that opened in Sydney. It was the Infectious Diseases Hospital for Sydney in Little Bay, the suburb of Little Bay. And
0: which is just north of Botany Bay.
3: Which is just north of Botany Bay, but it is just south of Maroubra and Malabar and... It is where I live in Sydney.
0: It became the location of Sydney's leper colony with male and female lazarets.
3: Yes, that's correct. Um, it had male and female lazarets and it they opened in 1890. The hospital itself opened in 1881.
0: Now, you mentioned that you live in Maroubra, so close to to Little Bay, did did that inspire your researchers?
3: It absolutely did. I began looking at that area when I was writing a book, my second novel, which was about the women's reformatory at Long Bay, and I went and um, did some research around Little Bay and I went to the Nursing and Medical Museum there at Little Bay, which is run by volunteer um, retired nurses, and I saw some photographs that had this sort of fenced-in area and it said, isolation, no admittance without permission. And I asked about it and it was a um, lazarette, which was the name for a small leprosy hospital that was there. Let
0: us just stop for a second and uh, look at the origin of the word because I understand it comes from Lazarus (laughs) in the Bible, who Jesus famously cured. (laughs) Lazarets.
3: Yes, it is a very interesting word. When I've researched it as well, though, it also comes from the area on a ship that was a quarantine area on a ship, which was what they used it for as well.
0: Now, it started out as a place, I understand, to isolate Chinese people with smallpox.
3: Yes, at first, the first um, patients at the Sort of isolation area on the beach at Little Bay where Chinese patients with smallpox in sort of 18,
0: 1881. When does leprosy first appear here?
3: In the 1850s, um, the first case of leprosy in Australia was recorded. But the first cases in in New South Wales came a little bit later in the 1870s and the lazarette didn't open until 1890.
0: Some of the characters in your book come from Jiggy Creek near Lismore because there was a cluster there. Do we know why?
3: It's really interesting. They call it the Lismore cases of leprosy. It was endemic to the Northern Rivers and some of the assumptions around that are because leprosy does spread more easily in tropical areas and because it's not a disease that is genetically passed along, but the propensity towards it is passed along in families.
0: Was it present? in the Indigenous population?
3: It wasn't until the late 1800s, but by the 1920s, most more than half of the cases of leprosy in Australia were in the Indigenous population.
0: I remember doing stories on the, the big cluster around Broome and the Kimberling.
3: Yes, so there were incredibly big clusters around there. There were big clusters in WA as well. of the population are immune to leprosy, but it obviously is is a disease that spread, or Hansen's disease, as it's called now.
0: And the Indigenous population were particularly susceptible because it hadn't existed on the continent before colonisation.
3: Absolutely, yes.
0: Okay, now... I describe in the intro a bit about how you were treated if you were thought to have leprosy, but paint the picture for us in more detail, please, Eleanor.
3: So if you were found to have leprosy, you would be taken away from your family by police, you would be taken either, you know, in the back of a of a police van or a police carriage at the time or on a ship. If you needed to be taken by ship, you would be put in a train carriage. And at every stage, the transportation you were taken in was probably burned after you were taken in it.
0: Heavens above. And we should point out that lots of states had the Leper Act.
3: Yes. Pretty much every state had a leper act, and that was compulsory notification and detention of people who had the disease. And because there was no cure, it was a lifelong detention most of the time.
0: Your character, or one of your characters, is kept locked in a shed in the jail yard for almost a week while they build a a hasty deckhouse for the coastal steamer.
3: Yes. And this did happen. Deck houses were built for ships because they did not want to put them um, with other people in the ship. People were terrified of leprosy, which is really interesting as well because even then people did know that it was not a highly contagious disease but it was thought to be incredibly contagious. It It was feared that if you touched someone who had leprosy that you would immediately catch it.
0: Now, let's go back to the Bible where uh, so much of it, the bad publicity, begins. It didn't help with people's perception of so-called lepers, did it? Because, uh, well, it was seen as, as the most horrific and, in a sense, judgmental illness.
3: Yes, absolutely. Leprosy is the disease most mentioned in the Bible and it was about shunning those who had leprosy. They were seen as unclean, unclean in Leviticus. And so, in fact, what is referred to as leprosy in the Bible, now we now a lot of experts think was a generalized skin condition and wasn't actually what we now know of as Hansen's disease. So, it
0: covered a multitude of skin problems. Yes. Okay. Now, let us just go back to the accommodations i have to say that the description of the of the of the, of the little cottages of the lazarets is, is really quite quite moving you know and obviously people were trying to do the right thing
3: yes they were trying to do the right thing and people were there for a very long time i mean they were they were going to be kept there for life and so they had things like a piano they had a small library they had a rowboat in fact when you go to the beach at little bay there's still the wall from the men's lazarette there's a sandstone wall and there's a small archway in it this is at the north end of the beach at little bay And that was the wall where they would, um, that little archway is where they would take the fishing boat out on slip rails and they could go fishing. So the north end of the beach was called the Leper Beach.
0: I learned from you that people could keep ducks and fowls and, and pets and observe the customs and habits of their nation as far as possible.
3: The coast was... Certainly, a much better place to have leprosy than most of the lazarets in Australia.
0: Now, I've talked already of the uh, of the leper colonies in the Kimberley, but there were leper colonies around the states.
3: That's right, absolutely. Um, so there was Peel Island up in Queensland, um, which was in Morton Bay. It was a leprosy colony that I went to when I was researching this novel, and um, it inspired me to include the the stories of Indigenous patients as well in this. There was Phantom Island near Townsville and Mud Island and Channel Island in the Northern Territory. In WA, there was the Derby Leprosarium, um, which didn't close until, I think it's 1989,
0: Now, South Australia, Victoria and Tasmania didn't need lazarets.
3: No. um, If there were leprosy patients, they were treated in the exotic diseases hospitals in those places. But they did not have as many because um, of the climates as much because they didn't have that sort of humidity.
0: Now, Peel Island was notorious for its poor treatment of Aboriginal people, wasn't it?
3: It was, absolutely. Um it did segregate its patients who were white and not white and treated them very differently when i went there i saw the examples of the cottages and those cottages for the white patients there had you know electric lighting they had glass and little verandas and then the cottages for the non-white patients were you know corrugated iron with dirt floors and holes cut in them for windows and doors they were expected, um, you know, they had sort of. They were expected to cook their own food from from you know some of what they were given, and and they didn't get the same treatment as well as the white patients.
0: They live and die in this terrible isolation.
3: Absolutely, and I think that while leprosy is is an incredibly difficult disease as well, I think that the treatment was even more dehumanising than the disease.
0: People change their names to save their families from shame.
3: They did. So one of the first things at almost every leprosy colony in the world that people are asked to do is is change their names. And the reason for this is because they're protecting um, the patient's family from the stigma of being related to someone who has leprosy. And then they're buried in graves with either a number or initials or just a, their changed name. So it's this sort of sadness of, of the anonymity.
0: Now, let's look at uh, the symptoms of leprosy. Uh, you know, I grew up believing that uh, your fingers and toes fell off. A bit more a bit more subtle than that.
3: It is. And I grew up thinking exactly the same thing, Philip. Um, I think most people did. It's actually about the loss of sensation. So it, it affects your nerves and your fingers and toes don't fall off, but you damage them because they get burned or you bump them into things. Your bones do eventually resorb and you do um, eventually also there there can be blindness and other issues like that as well.
0: So you lose sensitivity and people often got burned or disfigured because they didn't feel the warning of pain.
3: That's right. So pain is actually our body's way of telling us not to do things and it's really important to feel pain in order to look after our extremities um, without the feeling of pain you cause yourself a lot of damage.
0: Now, For as you've already distance. said, it's nothing like as infectious as as people feared. And you say that 95% of the population is not susceptible.
3: That's right, naturally immune to the disease. And it also takes prolonged extended contact with people who have it, um, for that 5% who are, who are not naturally immune to the disease to catch it. So it is transmitted by droplet, but it's prolonged contact with a with person.
0: It's not genetically inherited.
3: It isn't. It's not genetically inherited, but the susceptibility can be genetically inherited. So this is why we see in leprosy colonies and lazarets, you saw multiple generations of the same family, because between, it takes between four and 20 years for the symptoms of leprosy That's to show up. That's the
0: incubation period.
3: That's a really long incubation period. My <laughs> heavens.
0: And it thrives. In the more humid climates.
3: It does, absolutely, which is why um, up at Jigai Creek around Lismore, there was a cluster around there and there were clusters in places like Darwin and Brisbane around in Queensland.
0: It's an, an irony, isn't it, that so many of the diseases treated at the coast were far, far more contagious. I'm thinking of scarlet fever, influenza, TB, but only the leprosy patients were locked away.
3: Absolutely. And locked away for life, a lot of them.
0: Now, they were isolated from the outside world, but they could find companionship within the lazarets and and friendships and even love affairs.
3: Yes, and that definitely did happen. They didn't have a lot to do there was um there was not a lot to to cover their time. and so they they did fall in love with one another. They made um, close friendships. they um, had concerts. they
0: Really, concerts?
3: Yeah, they had concerts as well. Definitely, they had little musical concerts. There was the one of the nurses at um, the coast hospital used to the matron actually used to organise concerts for the in the lazarets for the patients there.
0: Well, that raises the issue: did any of the nurses or doctors contract leprosy?
3: None of them did. Is that no. right? Yeah. Yes, and it it really isn't that contagious because all around the world it's very rare that anyone who's worked in those leprosy colonies has contracted leprosy. There is a case of Father Father Damien in the famous Molokai, um, but he it was also, you know, sleeping in the same beds, eating from the same dishes, and and you know not practicing much hygiene as well. <laughs>
0: My old friend and collaborator, the late Paul Cox, made a film on Father Damien. Huh? So did anyone ever get out?
3: Yes, people did occasionally. You had to have a twelve consecutive clean smears, and they used these smears to to look for the leprosy bacillus. Um, and occasionally people who had a milder version, would would get out of the lazarettes. It was pretty rare, though, um, and and often when they did get out, they found that their families no longer um, wanted to associate with them, you know, or society shunned them. They also had disfigurement from their years of disease, so it wasn't easy to get out either.
0: Now, I don't know. With early diagnosis and treatment the disease can be cured?
3: It absolutely can. So since the 1940s um, in Carville in Louisiana, they discovered um, that that a cure for um, tuberculosis was actually useful in curing leprosy as well. And now they have a multi-drug solution that um, is absolutely effective in curing leprosy.
0: You were writing this uh, This. During COVID, that must have given the tale a lot of extra poignancy.
3: It absolutely did. Feel, I didn't. I didn't plan to write this during COVID, but it came up, and I suddenly went back to the sections I'd written about isolation and about um, and about the fear of touching other people, the fear of of what we don't know, and it all became a lot. More meaningful to me what those things are. Also, the the kind of joy that we get in the small bits of the natural environment that we get. I found that I was going out on my daily walks and noticing so much more of what was around me because of the isolation.
0: I have to say that your story reminds us here of the contemporary asylum seekers, uh, locked up in detention centres. Occasionally, I give a guest an award. It's called a koala stamp, and it's for uh, being a particularly fascinating guest, and you've just won one. So thanks for coming in, Eleanor. Eleanor Limprecht, author of The Coast, published by Alan and Unwin. On our next beloved listeners, Ian Dunt returns to talk about Rishi, or as I prefer to call him, Richie, soon next first week as PM. And Richard Flanagan joins us again for an update on the salmon wars, along with uh, journalists who've looked into the Canadian company about to take over Tasmania's biggest salmon farm. And that's a very fishy story. <laughs>